Welcome to the Callcast and to what we believe is the northernmost podcast in the world. We are thrilled to have you as a listener and will throughout this series give you an insight to the exciting research that goes on at the University Centre in Svalbard, or UNIS as we like to call it. You'll meet professors and students who are passionate about their cold climate research and learn more about the Arctic, both as a field of study but also as a place we call home. My name is Maria Filippo Rossi and I'm your host today. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to the first episode of the Callcast, where we had a chat with professor in oceanography, Frank Nielsen. He explained about the ocean currents around Svalbard and how they impact the ice cover or, or current lack of ice in the fjords here on West Spitsbergen. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's available in your chosen podcast player. For this episode, I'm very thrilled to say that we are joined by glaciologist Heidi Silvestre. We'll, uh, we'll get into Heidi's background and uh, research soon, but first I uh, just want to say that uh, Heidi is a rock star in science communication and I always get a bit starstruck around you because you are very, very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Maria. I really appreciate it. No, uh, no worries. Um, can you, um, what, what uh, just, just when I say science communication, what, uh, what do you think about? You know, it certainly is without a doubt today, my biggest motivation. I mean, this is really what makes me wake up in the morning and want to kind of devour the day. Because for me, my journey in science communication really started here at UNIS, here in Svalbard. And when I moved here to do my PhD, I think I had not only no interest in doing outreach, I was too shy to do any of it. And I just thought my science would speak for itself. But very quickly, when you spend time here, you see the changes happening. I mean, you see glaciers losing 200, 300 meters in length per year. You see the permafrost thawing, you see the landslide. You understand the power of outreach and the power of sharing what you see in the field with the people coming to the university, whether it's the students, whether it's all the VIPs that come here quite often, or the journalists. And by being here and able to do that, you can have an impact. And this is, to me, the most important thing today as a scientist is what kind of impact can you have? Uh, that sounds good, because what is your, uh, you, you came to Svalbard for the first time in uh, 2008. Can you just briefly take us through your, your background? Yeah, exactly. I mean, oh, it's such a long time ago now, but to me, being able to come to Svalbard for the first time really changed my life. At the time, I was a student, a bachelor student, studying physical geography. And I had the chance to do this exchange semester, which is called Erasmus uh, in Europe. And all my friends were going to London, to Barcelona or to Milan, you know, to party for six months. And I just wanted to go as far as I could and I wanted to get very close to the ice, wherever that would be. And actually, a friend of mine told me, hey, do you know about this university in Spitsbergen? And I thought, what? Are you joking? There's a university there? And that evening, I just went on my computer, opened Google Images, and Googled Unis. And immediately, I found all these incredible pictures you know, of the lights in the spring, the university, the students spending time in the field. And, and this is what I got to do for a semester. I followed courses in uh, geology because I couldn't study glaciology right away. But that got me so close to the field. I mean, in the heart of what I wanted to study with these amazing lecturers and professors 
that it really shapes um, the rest of my career, the rest of my studies. Um, and I still feel so grateful for the chance to be able to spend a few months there because this was a determining factor definitely for, for the rest of my life until today. Uh, because your your research has been uh, on uh, glaciers, and I I know that when you when you do your science communication, you uh, you try to get people to understand uh, that we can't just ignore the climate changes, and we are here at the the top of the world. Uh, why should someone in in Africa or even like mainland Norway? Why should they care about what happens uh, in Svalbard? Yeah, I think this is the most important question um, because we want people to care. And here people care. I mean, the people of Longyearbyen, the people of Svalbard care so deeply about the environment, about how quickly it is changing. But if we want to preserve this environment for as long as possible, we want the other people to also care. We want people back home in France for me. We want people in, in Africa, people in Asia to fully understand that they are also connected to the Arctic. And just to focus on glaciers, which is what I focus on, what I study, um, glaciers matter a lot because when they melt, when they lose ice, they contribute to sea level rise. And in Svalbard, we have a little bit over 2,000 glaciers, and when they melt, they make sea levels rise all over the world. We don't have a lot of glaciers here, but at least by spending time in the field, trying to study the physics, the dynamics of the glaciers here, we better understand what is taking place, for example, on the ice of Greenland. And imagine if Greenland were to lose its ice, it would, include in, it would increase sea levels globally by six to seven meters. And the physics, the dynamics are the same, it's just a difference in scale. If we look at Antarctica, where there is even more ice, if Antarctica were to lose its ice, it would increase sea levels globally by 58 meters. So for that single reason, people should really care. People should deeply care about the fact that the Arctic today is warming three to four times faster than the global average, than the planet as a whole. And what's important to note is that Every time we burn fossil fuels, it is catalyzing the melting of the Arctic and it's impacting the rest of the world via, for example, sea level rise. So we're all connected. Even if you live in France, in Asia, in Africa, in America, you can contribute positively to the glaciers of the Arctic by reducing your carbon footprint. But you could also have a negative impact on this region and in turn, you would suffer the consequences that are directly linked to the melting of the Arctic. I um I read a report about something um, Norwegians being one of the most climate change skeptic in in Europe or at least of the countries included in this study, and and that might be because for Norwegians uh, a warmer climate means we get nicer summers, we get longer a longer time in t-shirt and uh, shorts. But of course, for for say for France, it means drought and and major consequences. Yeah, absolutely. The, the fact that the Arctic is changing so quickly is affecting the stability of the climate uh, for the whole of the Northern Hemisphere, actually. And good if Norway is not feeling the heat, is not feeling these negative impacts too much at the moment. But it's very likely that this will, will increase in the future. Um, the IPCC report says that these extreme weather events will increase in frequency, will increase in intensity in the next few years and few decades if we're not able 
to reduce uh, the burning of fossil fuels. So that is, for example, things we saw last summer all over the world, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's wildfires, droughts, intense rains, but also very cold events, cold uh, waves, such as what we've seen in the US over the past few weeks. So in a way, we're all connected to what's happening to the Arctic, but we have to know it. We have to learn it somehow. And we come back to the importance of science communication. If you haven't felt the effects of climate change just yet, well, maybe you should still learn about this and prepare for kind of the worst case scenario, for, for what could come to your country in the next few years and few decades. Last year, you uh, you went on a research expedition that was a bit different from your regular fieldwork with snowmobiles. Uh, you and three fellow glaciologists went on a ski trip. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> it sounds like a, such a nice uh, ski trip. You had such a jolly ride uh, in Svalbard. But that was, uh, that was an amazing project that took us so many years to put together. Um, uh, the project was called uh, Climate Sentinels. And through this project, we wanted to show that science can be done differently, even in the most extreme of environments. So, for example, we wanted to put together an all-female team of scientists. This is what we did. And I'm really grateful for my teammates, uh, Nina, Celia and Anna, for, for joining me on this trip. Uh, we wanted to show that science can be uh, more respectful towards the environment. So this is why we took skis with us and, and pulled all our equipment behind us uh, for a month. Um, and we wanted to make science as accessible as possible. So we partnered with uh, classrooms across the world from Canada to Australia to follow us on this journey. But it was first and foremost a research expedition. And for us, it was very important to focus on, okay, we are going to Svalbard. What kind of research can we actually do? And to be completely honest, it's very limited what you can do on skis, pulling a pork, pulling a sled behind you for a month. Um, so we decided that the best uh, thing we could study was how air pollution can catalyze the melting of the Arctic. So as you know, every time we burn fossil fuels, it's emitting uh, particles, uh, you know, soot. We call this black carbon. And these particles are so small, so light, you know, they can travel over thousands of kilometers being carried away by air currents. And as soon as it rains or snows, then these particles are dumped on the ground. And if the ground is snow or ice, very bright, very clear, nice surf surfaces that reflect solar radiation very well, but eventually they become darker and darker and darker, affected by air pollution. And the darker they are, the more they will absorb solar radiation and the faster they're going to melt. So the goal of our trip was basically to join the dots between different research stations. We started in the Allison in the northwest of Svalbard. We aimed to go as far south as possible. And overall, we collected about 100 snow samples of different depths. The samples have just been analyzed at Western Washington University by uh, Professor Alia Khan. And right now we're waiting for the interpretation to go through. So hopefully, hopefully in the next few months, we'll be able to say, where was the pollution coming from and what has burnt in the first place? You know, was it coal? Was it wildfires in California or parts of Europe that is affecting uh, the rest of the Arctic? And for us, it's, it's really important to be able to pinpoint the source of the problem because this is the first step towards finding a solution. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, you, you mentioned it that you were out for a month, but I just want to emphasize you were actually out for a month on skis with your tent and bulkers <laughs> and polar bear guards and, uh, and collecting these uh, samples. But you also, you were talking about extreme weather and you experienced uh, quite a bit of weather on that trip, didn't you? It was horrendous. Um, I think we really didn't expect it. And, and pretty much everyone in my team uh, knows Svalbard like the back of their hand. Um, you know, I've been coming in Svalbard since 2008. Most of them were in the same situation. We decided to spend this time in Svalbard. Uh, we, picked, we picked the month of April for the expedition because it's typically when you have a high-pressure system, it's very stable weather, cold but sunny. And we had the complete opposite for the beginning of the expedition. We just had one storm after another after another. And these storms at the time were typically very warm, so almost positive temperatures, um, really high winds. I mean, we had winds up to 140 kilometers per hour and bringing a huge amount of snow. Um, and bear in mind, yeah, we were very vulnerable. We were on skis. We were camping most of the time. Um, eventually we even had to kind of dig holes in the snow to, to avoid our tents flying away. Um, it was really distressing. It was, it, it was really, really scary most times. Um, but I think we realized, took us a few days, but eventually we understood that what we were seeing was truly what scientists had been saying for a very long time, that Svalbard in the face of climate change will become warmer, wetter, but also more unpredictable. And this is exactly what happened. We had no idea what had become to the weather because it was so wild, so unpredictable. And luckily we had this amazing team back in town in, in Longueuil sending us weather forecasts twice a day. And these people are meteorologists. They are climatologists. They, they fully understand the weather up here in Svalbard and they couldn't believe it. So what we what we lived through was this really abnormal event that might have given us an idea of what Svalbard will be like in the future. That Arctic warming is not jolly good, you know, it's not necessarily something that makes living conditions nicer, more comfortable. It's also storms, it's also wilder weather, more extreme weather in every direction. Um, and I think this is certainly something that we were keen to share after our expedition, to tell the world, you know, humbly, and, you know, as many people as we could, that um, this is what's happening to Svalbard and that people should deeply, deeply care. Has it been easier to, to share that when you can actually say, I was there, I have the photos, I have the experiences? Without a doubt. I think it's, it's very important to understand the value of being there in the field, not just during our expedition Climate Sentinels, but being a student here, being a, a, a professor here, you know, a scientist in Svalbard is really key to be able to share your message because people will really feel it, you know, if you have been there, if you've seen those changes, if you have sometimes been affected by those changes yourself. And I think it's, it's a part of the whole package, you know, of, of having an impactful message. If you had the chance to be there, to see it, to be a witness of climate change, people will really listen to what you have to say. And we noticed that as soon as we came back from the expedition right away, people wanted to hear from us. They wanted to understand 
what was happening to Svalbard and how their country further south could be affected by this. Because you have worked uh, with glaciers not only in Svalbard but in all over the world, uh, really, and have a project called the Tropical Glaciers. Yeah, it's uh, it's really far from Svalbard. Uh, the project is called the Last Tropical Last Glaciers. Tropical glacier, it's yeah. very close. Um, but this is a project that really came from the heart. Um, you know, I got the chance to to travel around the world to study glaciers, especially in the polar regions. But quickly, I realized that there were some glaciers that nobody really cares about that are scattered around the equator. And these are the glaciers that we call tropical glaciers. Uh, so they are very close to the equator. They are found really high up in the mountains because this is the only way they can survive. Um, these are glaciers that are inherited from the last ice age. And most of them are above 5,000 meters high. And imagine, these glaciers are incredible. We all know, for example, the glaciers of Mount Kilimanjaro, for example. So these are tropical glaciers. Um, but I got to spend quite a bit of time in Colombia, uh, which I never thought in a million years that as a glaciologist I would spend so much time there. But a few years ago, we got invited by uh, a project built by citizens. Most of them are not scientists. And they realized that there were glaciers in their country. They realized that these glaciers were still very important today. But sadly, they were all disappearing one after the other. And these tropical glaciers must be today some of the most endangered glaciers in the world. They are the ones that are disappearing the fastest. Um, so I wanted to go there. I wanted to see what was happening in Colombia. I wanted to work with this amazing project, Cumbres Blancas Colombia. I wanted to meet... The one glaciologist, Jorge Luis Ceballos, who lives in Colombia and who looks after these 70 glaciers that are left in the country. And what we saw there was absolutely incredible to see that in a country like Colombia, and you would think that they have other priorities than you know, caring about their glaciers, but they care so deeply. They've built this project that is literally moving mountains. They're working with the local scientists, with the stakeholders, the policymakers, with the indigenous communities to make sure that their entire population knows about these glaciers, that they care and that they try their hardest to slow down the melting and to preserve them. And what I love about this is that they're really focusing on, on concrete actions, they're reforesting, uh, for example, the wetlands around the mountains where there are glaciers. Uh, they're trying to reduce air pollution around the mountain. They're trying to divert more funding towards uh, the research in glaciology. It is incredible to see that something like this can happen. Mm -hmm. To me, it is the biggest source of inspiration, what's happening in Colombia right now. And I really want to be as supportive as I can, but also... You know, I'm taking good note of all these great ideas happening there because I think this is something we could see in Norway. You know, this is something we could see on Svalbard, something mm -hmm. we could see in France. Um, it's not too late to save these glaciers. It's very difficult when it comes to tropical glaciers because they're melting very quickly. But we know it's not too late for all the other glaciers in the world. But it's definitely time to act as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And and we're now in uh, early January, if you're listening to this uh, during the summer of 2023, but the, uh, recently came out a report about the state of the glaciers, and that's not uh, positive news. 
Yeah, it's not good news. Um, I mean, there are very few good news uh, in my world, sadly. Uh, we are losing our ice, especially our, our mountain glaciers. And this study was very important. It was published in Science, and it's probably the most complete study on mountain glaciers today. So what the study does is that it looks at the 220,000 glaciers we have in the world and tries to be able to project what could happen to these glaciers based on the decisions we make today. So are we going to stay below 1.5 degrees or not? Are we going to go to plus 2 degrees, plus 3, plus 4 degrees by the end of the century? And based on these four different scenarios, what is going to happen to these glaciers? And what the study tells us, probably the most important result, is that even if we stay below 1.5 degrees, we would lose half of the world's glaciers by um, the end of the century. So this will happen uh, almost no matter what, losing half of them. It's mostly the small glaciers, for example, the tropical glaciers, the glaciers at low elevation that will uh, disappear first. But I think to me, and maybe I'm the only one interpreting the paper this way, it is also a publication about hope because it's telling us how much we can still save based on these different scenarios. So yes, we are losing half of them, but what about the other half? And we know that in order to save the other half, we absolutely has to have to stay below two degrees. And we know, you know, scientists talk about these 1.5 or two degrees all the time, every day, because they matter. They have a real um, truth, you know, in these uh, thresholds, these thresholds, have a physical reality. And we know that if we go beyond 1.5, beyond 2 degrees, we start to lose control to the cryosphere, to all the snow and ice regions in the world. But why should we care about these mountain glaciers? You know, I was telling us, I was telling you in Svalbard, the mountain glaciers are quite small. They don't contribute much to sea level rise. But actually, these uh, mountain glaciers matter enormously for the rest of the world. We know that 3.5 billion people rely on water from mountain glaciers. So this is water for drinking, water for sanitation, water for irrigation of the crops. This is water to, to maintain the discharge of rivers during the summer months. You know, in France, we have this river called the Rhone River. Without glaciers, the discharge is 40% less in the summer months. And we have six uh, nuclear power plants along this river mm. that needs the water from the river to cool down during the summer months. So this is just to show you that these glaciers matter a lot and we absolutely need to do whatever it takes to slow down the melting and eventually to stabilize it. Because today, I don't think we're able to quantify um, economically the amount of money that is being made thanks to these glaciers. You know, they're giving us this water away for free. We just expect it to happen every summer. But actually, the value of a cubic meter of ice from these mountain glaciers is absolutely priceless. Mm -hmm. And the day we're able to quantify this, hopefully very soon, I'm sure our policymakers will react much faster than they are today. Someone's coming after us, uh, next generation, and you worked a lot with them, younger people, but how do they tackle the information and what you are trying, what the scientists are trying to, to tell them? I think it's so important to work with the youth, to work with the younger generations. Um, you know, they are, they are aware of what's happening. For them, climate change is not a question. It's not a debate. Uh, they're fully aware that we are in the middle of a crisis. 
But they will be the ones, you know, having to suffer from the consequences of, of this crisis uh, in the next few decades. So for me, it's very important to be there for them in terms of giving them the information they need to have. So I don't hide the truth from them. You know, I'm just not trying to be nice. I just tell them exactly the way things are today. But I try to make sure that they understand that at the moment, they're not supposed to fix the problem on our behalf. You know, we're supposed to do that. This is my generation, the generations that are able to vote today, that are in power today, that can and should make a change. But we certainly need the voice of the youth. We need them to say it, to, to hold us accountable when things are not right. But again, we don't expect them to fix the climate crisis today. Um, but it really affects me so much to see, you know, this crippling eco-anxiety among the youth, um, the distress, you know, they're in at the moment. But also that to make sure they understand that sometimes the best remedy for uh, eco-anxiety is action. And again, you know, I don't expect them to fix everything, but just try to do something, whether it's to use your voice, to have discussions in your family, to have discussions at school. Um, and I see hope all over the place in the youth. And as scientists, we need to be there for them. This is very important. You spent an enormous amount of time in the field. Do you have any uh, best or, or worst moments? <laughs> I have a lot of worse moments for sure, <laughs> certainly. Um, but I think it's it's quite humbling to spend time in the field up here. And this is something that that in a way you can become quite addicted to, I feel. You know, we're also passionate about having boots on the ground here and seeing the changes happening and, and feeling the force of nature. Um, but by being up here, you I think you fully understand that you cannot stop an ocean that is rising. You cannot stop a glacier that is just collapsing. You understand the sheer power of the nature here. And I wish, you know, I wish I could bring all these policymakers, all these stakeholders, and I know many of them come up here to see what's happening, just to make them feel the power of nature here and that we're so small, but that, if you try to tackle this nature a little bit too much, you know, it will make you pay. It will definitely impact you in the most negative ways possible. Um, and so I think it's important to keep this field um, value, you know, this field aspect of research, uh, not just because we don't have all the technologies to to get out of this. <laughs> we still need to collect data in the field, but also... Um, simply because you understand that you're you're really really small compared to what's happening today. Do you think the policymakers are affected when they stand in front of a Nordenthal glacier, or do you think do you think they f they feel it? What you feel? I think, hopefully, maybe this is just a naive uh, wish, but I'm sure that something must be happening in their minds when they see the scale of these glaciers, of these icebergs especially when they have, you know, a scientist next to them um, helping them to read the landscape. Um, and, and I'm convinced that it can make all the difference to bring them up here um, and, and make them realize that simply how, how weak this landscape can be, that these giant glaciers are actually extremely fragile in the face of climate change. 
but also to see that behind these glaciers, what we have is lives and livelihoods. Um, that these faraway regions of the Arctic that are melting, thawing, collapsing so quickly is impacting their population back home. And this is, I think, the kind of connection we need to make as scientists here. Every time politicians or these VIPs, these journalists come up here, is to make sure they understand the link between Svalbard, uh, the Arctic and the rest of the world. And that's, of course, where the science communication comes in as well, because we can't bring everyone who needs or who wants to care for the climate. They can't come up here and see it before going back. We, You need to communicate the importance so people who have never travelled to Svalbard also feel the urge to do something. Yeah, and truthfully, we don't want the entire planet to come up here because that would be a giant carbon footprint <laughs> and that wouldn't be good. But a few key people, absolutely. I think it can be, um, it can make a huge difference. Um, but I think, yeah, my, my goal is to see, you know, glaciers, the glaciers of Svalbard in, in every classroom, in every boardroom, you know, in every time decisions are being made about the climate. I want to make sure people remember, you know, remember the importance of the glaciers of Svalbard and, you know, more than numbers, more than graphs, more than curves going up or going down. I really want people to feel it deep inside of them. And we understand that, you know, emotions are always so much more powerful than numbers, than any IPCC report we can throw at them. Um, and this is why science communication needs to use all the tools that are available. Yes, of course, science is the foundation for this. But we need to talk about the time we spend in the field. You know, we need to use sometimes art to share a powerful message about climate change and climate action, that we need to use, you know, the right tools, the right resources, the right people to do that. Um, because as scientists, we can only do so much on our own level. But I think it's very important that in a way we hold each other's hands and, and try to make a difference together and try to inspire people perhaps to become future experts of the Arctic. But we want to inspire people to make a change, to make a difference we know that in order to, to win the fight against climate change, that we need a profound transformation of our societies as quickly as possible. There's no two ways around this. This needs to happen. The IPCC report says it. This is really the, I mean, our civilization, the future of our civilization that is at stake. So this is what, you know, science communication is all about. It is about trying to alert people about what's happening. It's about making them fall in love with these landscapes. But most importantly, it's about pushing people into action. Fantastic. And uh, I mean, I, listening to you, I, I realize you're a, you're a big part of this as well and, uh, and your voice matters. So if you can inspire others, that will uh, definitely be one, uh, one small step on the way. So um, thank you very much for the chat, Heidi, and, uh, and for your passion for communicating science. And uh, it's one of the goals for this podcast as well, trying to, uh, to make, uh, make the science accessible and uh, understandable for people who are interested in uh, both the Arctic and, and the polar regions. The Coldcast is made by technician Siemens Arnold Monsen-Jelle and uh, myself, Maria Filippa Rossi. Thank you very much for listening.